Sometimes in your search for happiness, you ponder the meaning of your life. And what is the truth? You sift your memory for beginnings. The truth. You send your mind ahead for directions. Truth. But all you really know is now, and you are lost in the present. And what is the truth? Well, now, here's a man who wants to get right down to it. Kind of anxious to get to it, are you? Whatever. Welcome back to Know Thyself, the history podcast where we try to figure out who we are by looking at where we've been and what we've done. I'm the host, Noel Armstrong, as always trying to resurrect sense and meaning out of the dust of a billion factoids. And as I already alluded to in the previous episode, today's episode may be a little bit darker, not quite as uplifting as you might expect from an episode on human cannibals, so be prepared, be warned. Today's episode is the Cannibals of War. And I believe it is a pretty strong and fitting conclusion to this series. I know there's a lot of cannibalism that I am leaving on the table, so to speak. For example, noticeably absent from this series will be serial killers and psychopathic cannibals, because even though these are fascinating stories, fascinating case studies, they're really case studies of one. They are aberrations. And it's difficult for me to believe that you can learn a lot about the general human condition by learning about people such as Jeffrey Dahmer and Albert Fish. So I'm not going to be talking about them. I could be wrong as far as how much insight they give us into who we are. But to me, I'm much more interested in common, everyday, normal people eating each other. In other words, I'm more interested in the extreme conditions that can bring about extreme behaviors. Because to me, that's human behavior. The attitudes, the actions that we exhibit when we are under stress, whether it's Mental stress, physical stress, emotional stress, those are still very human behaviors. And as such, I think we can learn a lot about ourselves by studying them. Bertrand Russell, the English philosopher, in one of his unpopular essay series said the following, quote, Collective fear stimulates herd instinct and tends to produce ferocity toward those who are not regarded as members of the herd. Neither a man, nor a crowd, nor a nation can be trusted to act humanely or think sanely under the influence of a great fear. I love all these quotes which compare us to herd animals. For a long time that seemed to be in vogue. But I think it is hard to escape the analogy. Whether you call it in-group, out-group, tribalism, or herd behavior, we definitely have a group of individuals that we consider us And everyone else that falls outside of that circle, that group, is a them. Our vision of ethics expands as our security increases. But just watch as the fears and the threats and the insecurities begin to mount. Watch that circle start to close in again. And eventually, when the stresses get high enough, you may end up feeling like the only being to whom you have any moral obligation whatsoever is yourself. Now, I know that sounds like a pretty extreme scenario, and I don't know that every person would get to that point, but let's hope our society never degrades to the point where we have to find out, because societies, historically, have gotten to that point many, many times. And as a matter of fact, we will be talking about such times during this episode. The scope of our ethical inclusiveness is inversely proportionate to the level of insecurity we feel. 
course, I'm sure a hundred people have already said it, and a lot better than I just did, but it seems really obvious to me that the more secure we are, the more generous we are, the less secure we are, the tighter we have to ring it in, circle the wagons, raise the drawbridge, close the blast doors. All of those metaphors come from some form or other of siege warfare, because that's what we're going to be talking about first. And I cannot think of a better microcosm, you want to call it a pressure cooker, that you could put a group of people into to see the way that their ethics contract than to talk about a city under siege. Let's begin with a couple passages from the Jewish Bible. Whatever scholars may think about the historicity of the Bible, it does seem to have some fairly brutal, accurate depictions of what it is like for the inhabitants of a city under siege. This first passage comes from the Torah, Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 49 and following. And this is the Lord threatening from Mount Sinai what's going to happen to the Israelites once they get to their promised land if they are disobedient. He says that the Lord will bring a nation from far away from the ends of the earth against you like an eagle swooping down. It will be a nation whose language you don't understand, a fierce-looking nation without respect for the old or pity for the young. They'll destroy your livestock, your grain, your wine, all your olive oil. Destroy it all. Then it says that this fierce foreign nation will lay siege to all the cities throughout your land. Then it says, quote, because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege, you will eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters the Lord your God has given you. And then he warns that even the most gentle and sensitive man among you will have no compassion. No compassion for his own brother, no compassion for the wife he loves, no compassion for his own children, because he will not give any of those people the flesh of the children that he is eating. It goes on to threaten that even the most gentle and sensitive woman will begrudge the husband that she loves, her own children, her own sons and daughters, the afterbirth from her womb and the children she bears when, as it says, she is eating them. Because it says in her dire need, she intends to eat them secretly. So this is horrific. This is obviously a threat designed to shock and stun the Israelites into compliance. But what might be even more shocking and disgusting is it doesn't seem that it was just empty rhetoric. Because later on, when the Israelites are already living in their promised land, Ben-Hadad, the king of Aram, an adjoining nation, laid siege to the capital city of the northern kingdom, a city called Samaria. And the book of 2 Kings describes the conditions during this siege as follows. Chapter 6, verse 26. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help, my lord, O king. Then in verse 28, the king says, Woman, what is your trouble? She answered, This woman said to me, Give your son that we may eat him today, and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And on the next day I said to the woman, Give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. 
Now a similar fate seems to have befallen the southern kingdom, also known as the kingdom of Judah, because its capital city was besieged by the Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar. And after this siege, Jeremiah, or whoever wrote the book of Lamentations, wrote the following. In Lamentations chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says, quote, Happier were the victims of the sword than the victims of hunger, who wasted away pierced by lack of the fruits of the field. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became food for them during the destruction of the daughter of my people. So again, a very horrific description of people who care only about themselves. They don't care about their father, their mother, their wives, their husbands, their own children become their food. Now, it's a little hard for me to think that that is absolutely historical because it fits almost too exactly the threats that were issued from Sinai. But nevertheless, the horrors of a population living in a besieged city are documented not just in the Old Testament, but also in other ancient sources. And these fairly graphic depictions are kind of striking. Striking visuals of what it's like to be in a besieged city, to be starving to death, to be living in a complete breakdown of civilized society. And I admit that there is a tendency that I have to think that they are fairly exaggerated, that they are strictly written for a shock effect, a little hyperbolic. But at the same time, we have evidence now that these are the exact conditions that can obtain we don't need to wonder anymore if people are capable of these acts of depravity because we now have access to some fairly extensive records from the granddaddy of all sieges, the most deadly siege in history, the siege of Leningrad during World War II. And since the Soviets were excellent record keepers and since enough of the population was literate and could record in journals what actually occurred, like I said, we don't need to doubt any longer what people are capable of. In reality, the siege of Leningrad began around the 18th of December 1940, when Adolf Hitler issued Fuhrer Directive Number 21 to begin preparations for the invasion of Russia. And by June of 1941, Hitler had amassed over 3 million soldiers with which to attack the Soviet Union. And another million came from the north from Finnish and Spanish forces. 150 divisions, 600,000 motor vehicles, 3,000 tanks. Think about that, 3,000 tanks. This was the largest invasion force in all history. And military historians would tell you that not only was it the largest invasion force in all history, it was the most effective invasion force in all history. Their training, their technology, their communications had never been seen anywhere on the planet before. Now think about this. How ambitious was this project? The invasion front was almost 2,000 miles long. Now this entire project was known as Operation Barbarossa, and it involved three main goals. And since they came from Hitler, you can bet they were all very sane and noble goals. Goal number one, seize territory for the expansion of the noble German race. And this was no surprise because Hitler had even talked about this as early as 1925 in Mein Kampf, seizing part of Russia, taking it over to use for German expansion. Goal number two involved Hitler's ludicrous superstitions about race. 
So he considered the Slavic people untermenschen, subhumans. And as subhumans, they were to be driven out, exterminated, or enslaved to serve his noble German Aryan race. And number three, he was invading a fairly fertile farm area as well as an area with fairly extensive oil reserves which could help fuel and feed his war machine into the future. So to achieve these ambitions, he had three objectives. The first objective was to take Leningrad. Second objective was to conquer the eastern Ukraine. And then the third and final objective was to conquer Moscow itself. Why was Leningrad first in this plan? Well, there were several reasons. It was the birthplace of Bolshevism. And Hitler hated Bolshevism. And Leningrad was the symbolic capital of the Russian Revolution. And Hitler wanted to stick a dagger right into the heart of the Soviet spirit by destroying that birthplace. But it wasn't all symbolic, of course. Leningrad was the anchorage point for the Soviet Baltic Fleet. And Leningrad was also responsible for about 16% of the total Soviet industrial output. Just that one city. And what's interesting to me is that in the earliest days of Operation Barbarossa, both sides suffered from an extreme overconfidence. The Germans were sure they were going to crush all Russian resistance almost instantaneously. The Russians, on the other hand, were all raised as patriots, fed a steady diet of propaganda from their youth, and they were sure that they were going to crush the German army. Now, the optimism seemed to be borne out on the German side early on, because by July 4th, 1941, they had smashed their way across Russia and had approached within 200 miles of Leningrad. And the Russians just couldn't believe what was happening, according to a man named Lev Razmovsky. Quote, Early on, we started to hear about the number of towns being taken by the German army. We were shocked. How could this be happening? End quote. So when the 4th Panzer Division made its way to within 200 miles of the southern side of Leningrad. The citizenry went to work. Every able-bodied adult was put to work outside the city, reinforcing its defenses, especially digging anti-tank channels to halt the advance of the German army. Of course, the southern flank wasn't their only problem, because from the north, a massive army of Finns was approaching. Now, it's important to know one thing about the Finns. They were not Nazis. Okay, they actually protected their Jewish citizens from the Nazis. So they were not the same type of sick ideologues as the Nazis, but they hated the Soviets for their own reason. The Soviets had attacked Finland in 1939. They'd come to somewhat of a draw, but there was a treaty drawn up afterwards in which Finland lost 10% of its southern territory to the Soviets. And they saw this as an enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of deal, where they could fight with the Germans to reclaim that 10% of their land that had been taken. So now, as these invading armies approach Leningrad, they have a choice. They see all these fortifications. They can either attack, try to get through the fortifications, try to get into the city, fight a very costly and deadly battle of urban warfare, or they can just lay siege to the city. They can blockade it, prevent anyone from getting in or out, prevent any food from getting to the citizens. And the Axis forces decided on a blockade. In fact, German scientists did a few, I would say, cold calculations, tried to estimate how many calories actually existed within the city of Leningrad to estimate how long the population could survive. Two million people in the city, roughly. Many, many people had already fled from the Germans, but others had come in from the Russian countryside to avoid the Nazi approach. So the city actually swelled in population before the blockade began. 
and these scientists concluded that there was no way the city of Leningrad could last more than a couple of months. They just did not have enough calories in the entire city to sustain life any longer. The last rail connection to the city of Leningrad was severed on the 30th of August, 1941. And a few days later, on the 8th of September, the last road in or out of Leningrad was severed. And the blockade officially began. And on that same day, German bombers flew over Leningrad and decimated many of the food supplies that still existed within the city. It's important to remember, too, that Hitler's goal for Leningrad was not to occupy it, as he had done in Paris. He didn't want a single stone left on top of another stone in Leningrad. He wanted it raised to the earth. He wanted the people of Leningrad deported, enslaved, or killed. Again, he's trying to stick a dagger into the heart of the Soviet spirit. Hitler hated Bolshevism. But of course, on the other side, we have to say that Stalin hated Nazis. He hated fascists. That brings up a fairly interesting point, I think. When Hitler goes to war against Stalin, who do you root for? It's kind of like Charles Manson against Jim Jones. I mean, no matter who loses that fight, humanity wins, right? I have some information about that which I think is relevant. And so I'm going to digress for just a moment. In the New York Times Review of Books, from March 10, 2011, Timothy Snyder writes this, quote, Today, after decades of access to Eastern European archives, and thanks to the works of German, Russian, Israeli, and other scholars, we can resolve the question of numbers. The total number of non-combatants killed by the Germans, 11 million, is roughly what we had thought. The total number killed by the Soviets is considerably less than we had believed. The article then goes on to state that many of the people who died in the Soviet Union died of famines that could have been prevented. Stalin would heartlessly kick peasants off their land and let them starve to death. He would confiscate grain from the Ukraine and let Ukrainians starve to death. But apparently the gulags were not as deadly as we had supposed, and some of these purges were not as deadly as we had supposed. Most of the people who were arrested and sent to Siberia, the vast majority made it out again. And it is interesting and telling that even though Stalin was apparently anti-Semitic in his personal life, the Soviets themselves, Soviet policy, was decidedly against anti-Semitism. During the entire Stalin era, about 6 million people were killed in Russia. So even though Stalin was a total monster, compared to Hitler, he was a humanitarian. So if Hitler is John Wayne Gacy, then Stalin may only be a Ted Bundy. But of course, the Siege of Leningrad is not a battle between Stalin and Hitler. It is a German army trying to starve, trying to freeze and bomb a population of civilians. And this siege would go on for 872 days. Two million people trapped in the little city. By the time the Siege of Leningrad is over, more civilians, more non-combatants would die than in any siege in the history of humanity. It didn't end until a successful Soviet offensive pushed the Germans back to the West in January of 1944. That is a long time. And let's just talk about numbers of soldiers killed. 600,000 German soldiers would die. Over 3 million Russian soldiers would die. And civilians within Leningrad? Depending on the estimate, 650 to 800,000 souls died. 
during the siege of Leningrad in 872 days. Those are staggering numbers. Those are incomprehensible numbers. And those were just the people who stayed in Leningrad. Civilians who tried to evacuate the city? It's estimated that about 400,000 of those were killed as they tried to escape Leningrad. So all in all, the German army had the blood of over a million innocent Russian civilians on its hands during the siege of Leningrad. Think about that number, one million. About one million United States soldiers have been killed in all of the wars put together that the United States has ever fought. One million is ten times the number of people who were killed during the bombing of Hiroshima. And trust me, I am no apologist for that. I'm just trying to put it in perspective. Now, for years, the outside world had no idea what the actual conditions in Leningrad were like during the siege. One of the big tragedies of the Soviet era was that Stalin suppressed all the diaries and the police reports from the city of Leningrad after the siege was lifted. It's kind of a weird thing with Stalin. He was going to be the war hero. There would be no other heroes besides Stalin and this amorphous entity known as the brave Soviet people, quote-unquote. But individual acts of heroism and sacrifice were not publicized, and also the terrible conditions, the unprepared nature of the Soviets to deal with the siege of Leningrad was not to be publicized. So we did not have access until after the Cold War to the journals of the citizens of Leningrad. But now we do, and there are going to be two or three main sources that I get these quotes from. One is from Professor Alexis Perry of Boston University from her incredibly powerful book, The War Within, Diaries of the Siege of Leningrad. And these diaries paint a pretty bleak picture of human nature during a time of siege. Yes, there are acts of sacrifice, there are acts of heroism, but there's also a tremendous amount of corruption, greed, prostitution, and yes, cannibalism. It's interesting because people in these journals often express the wish that their nearest family members will die. And they almost exult in the fact that somebody has died when they do pass away. Talk about the fact that people have these food cards. The ration of bread was down to 250 grams a day for people who work in the factories and 125 grams of bread a day for those who don't. So that adds up to about 400 calories per day that the people in Leningrad were living on. And the way that they would get this bread was to take their ration card to the distributor and get dispensed a certain amount of bread. So when members of their family would die, they would conceal the fact that they had died for as long as humanly possible so they could take the ration card from the dead person and collect their daily bread ration also. One of the diarists in Perry's book writes, quote, Bread reigns supreme. It can do anything. It dictates and it chooses. End quote. One diarist summed up the way to survive by saying this, quote, The best way to survive was to draw an even tighter ring around oneself, end quote. It's exactly what we were talking about earlier. As the stresses mounted, as the situation became less and less secure, people began to exclude everyone except themselves from their zone of ethical inclusion. And this manifested in some fairly stark ways when someone would slide to the ground in the food line no one would help them. They figured they were just going to die, but what they would do was look to see if they could get a hold of their bread ration card. One of the journalists in Perry's book is named Alexandra Miranova. She was a history teacher before the siege of Leningrad. But of course, all the schools closed when the siege began. 
So she started to work for an orphanage, and she simply went around town trying to find children that she could rescue. She was one of the heroes. But even as she was out trying to rescue other children from starvation and death, she could not save her own children. Their names were Kosya, Anya, and Vasya, and they died within five months of the siege beginning. And you can tell that she's at least contemplating the idea of suicide at that point, but she goes on living because she wants to help rescue more children. And in her journal, she tells of a family called the Kaganovs. This was a poor family who was starving to death, and they had children. And she wanted to take the children away from them so that she could try to save their lives by taking them to the orphanage. But the Kaganovs would not let her. They said, quote, You may not take our source of fresh meat. Of course, we never find out what happened to these children, but you can only assume. Many of the children she saw were just in unimaginable circumstances. She found two very young girls below the ages of six, living with their mother who had passed away earlier. She was dead. The girls were foraging for food. The girls told her that their uncle had come by the day before, but instead of helping them and taking them with him, he had taken one of their chairs to burn for firewood and left them alone. And as horrible as this sounds, it was not an isolated event. Many of the children seemed to outlive their parents. Writing in RT.com, a woman named Katyana Korsakova was interviewed, and she said, quote, when spring came, we went to the bridge over the Fontanka River, and there we saw corpses floating down the river. And for some reason, the kids, including me, were not scared of the corpses, nor were we disgusted. It was just a fact of the reality we were living in, end quote. Those who didn't die, didn't starve to death or freeze to death, actually became kind of skeletal figures. They had no vitality left. Little boys and little girls began to grow facial hair. One of the diarists called them, quote, little old people, end quote. They were wandering around Leningrad. These little kids with hair on their faces like old men and old women. That's actually a well-documented phenomenon. When people have anorexia, they will begin to grow hair called lanugo. You can look it up online. Look up lanugo anorexia and you will see people who are starving who have this growth of facial hair and hair in other areas of their body. Scientists think it may be some way to try to keep warmth in the body when there's not enough fat and muscle to trap any heat. But it must have been a very disconcerting sight to see these prepubescent boys and girls with a bunch of facial hair wandering around without any way to support themselves and nobody apparently to help them. But back to cannibalism. That was also rampant. Anna Reed in a very powerful book called Leningrad, Tragedy of a City Under Siege, talks about the way the food supply diminished to where people were eating everything. Cold cream, licking the paste off of wallpaper, boiling joiner's glue, eating the products of fermentation of sawdust. So people are getting more and more desperate. She says that there were 2,000 documented arrests for acts of cannibalism during the siege of Leningrad. It was so common that there was actually a cannibalism task force set up in the Interior Ministry. Now, out of these 2,000 acts of cannibalism, police records document 586 people who were executed for acts of cannibalism. And the interesting thing is that eating a corpse would not get you executed. It would get you arrested, but it would not get you executed. What got you executed was eating a person. In other words, murder cannibalism was punishable by death. It's fascinating that the Russian language has two different words for cannibalism. One means corpse-eating, and the other means person-eating. So a person is somebody who's alive. 
that would get you executed. Over 500, almost 600 cases of murder cannibalism during the siege of Leningrad, almost one a day. And of course, there have to be many, many more who were never caught and never punished. Now, some of these circumstances of these convictions for murder cannibalism are documented in the police records. Some examples include one 18-year-old who killed his grandmother with an axe and then boiled her liver was convicted and executed. Another 17-year-old was convicted but not executed for digging up a corpse from the cemetery and running the corpse through a meat grinder. Another hospital employee was convicted of stealing the amputated limbs from the morgue at the hospital. You can only imagine what he was doing with them. One interesting fact is that most of the people who were arrested for cannibalism were women. And a fact that sends you right back to those Bible verses that sounded so extreme before is that many of these women who were arrested were arrested for killing their own children. Typically, they would kill the youngest to feed the older children. There were rumors that there were gangs of killers roaming the streets of Leningrad at night, and people refused to go out or refused to let their children go out at night because they were afraid they would be eaten. A woman named Proskovia Romanova remembers that she was in her teens when the blockade began. And she roamed around the city trying to find help for her sick father who eventually ended up dying. And she has a vivid memory of as she was roaming around trying to find help for her father, she passed by half-eaten corpse after half-eaten corpse, is how she described it. People who had been defleshed, just lying in the street as she passed. If you get a chance, I encourage you to look online for the movie The Unknown War, The Siege of Leningrad. Because in that movie, there's a man named Victor who has some very specific and very graphic remembrances of the siege of Leningrad. Some of the most gruesome quotes about the siege come from him. He says, quote, It is impossible to communicate that feeling of hunger. It is the most terrible thing in the world. You have the feeling that some sort of animal has climbed inside of you, some savage beast and he is scratching, gouging you with his claws, tearing your insides out. He demands bread, food, demands to be fed. He goes on, I saw it with my own eyes. There was this woman lying in our yard for several days with her breast cut off. I saw this boy, a child, a young child, dismembered. But don't let's talk about it. It's frightful. He goes on to describe how he was warned by the foreman to watch out for market women. Apparently there were women at the marketplace who would trade the bread ration for meatballs, but he had been warned what kind of meatballs these market women were selling, and so he avoided them. Now in Leningrad, the Commissariat for Internal Affairs was known as the NKVD, and the records from the NKVD were not released until 2004, and those NKVD reports formed a lot of the backbone for the book, say, by Anna Reed, and they documented episodes of cannibalism beginning the earliest one that came in seems to have been about six months after the siege began, December of 1941. The first reports of human cannibalism were coming in. And as you could well imagine, some of these reports were pretty disturbing. There were more reports of mothers killing their children in order to feed other children. There was a report of a plumber killing his wife with an axe so that he could feed other members of his family. In fact, these axes seem to come up again and again. Pretty disturbing, very violent method of killing somebody. But the interesting thing about these NKVD reports 
is that along with all these gruesome stories, these individual cases, they also compiled what I think are fairly interesting statistics. For example, it's from those reports that we learned that the majority of the cannibals were women. In fact, 64% of reported cases of cannibalism were women. Almost two out of three cannibals. I'm not sure how this statistic made it into the report, but the majority of cannibals were illiterate. But what I find a little more interesting is that 56% of the perpetrators of acts of cannibalism were employed. They were just your basic, everyday, working-class cannibals. These were pretty normal people before the war. In fact, only 2% of the people accused of acts of cannibalism had any prior criminal record whatsoever. They were not criminals. So I think these reports are simply invaluable. It seems to me that every time a city is placed under siege, acts of cannibalism were reported in the ancient world. But of course, it's the winners who are writing that history. And one of the ways to dehumanize your opponent most effectively is to claim that they descended into cannibalism on a massive scale. But here in the siege of Leningrad, we actually have very good record keepers. We have a social order that did not completely collapse. So there are even official reports and police reports and interior ministry reports that document the cannibalism. And for me, the take-home from the siege of Leningrad is twofold. One, yes, people did practice cannibalism. When they descend into the depths of misery and starvation far enough, they are capable of eating each other. Everyday, normal, as I said, salt-of-the-earth cannibals. But the other thing that I think is a take-home is that cannibalism seems to be relatively rare, especially murder cannibalism. People were literally dropping off like flies. An average about 700 people a day, by conservative, very conservative estimates, were dying in Leningrad. And yet the vast majority of the population did not participate in cannibalism. We'll never know how common it was. Because if you hear 2,000 arrests, like I said before, that's probably 20,000 cases. These are only the people getting caught. But even taking that into account, it was relatively rare in the scheme of things for people in Leningrad to try to prolong their own life or the lives of their family members by participating in cannibalism. And even more rare, to kill somebody to eat. It happened. And it really did happen far too often, but it was not ubiquitous by any stretch. As I said earlier, the siege finally broke in January of 1944. The Russian people never forgot. It became a rallying cry, a motivation, as they pounded their way into Germany, trying to get to Hitler to kill him. One thing that makes these reports of cannibalism so convincing is the fact that they were written by the people within the city. When you report transgressive, acts among your own people, it's more reliable than when you accuse an enemy of participating in them. Had it been the German army accusing the people of Leningrad of cannibalism, then we could probably say it was just another piece of Nazi propaganda justification for why they killed so many people. But in this case, it was self-reported. It reminds me to some extent of this biblical criticism term, the criterion of embarrassment. When you're trying to figure out if a text is authentic or not, if the writer of the text would have had a reason to suppress the information and yet includes it anyway, well, the only explanation for that is that it actually happened. Must be true. So the people of Leningrad, the information about their cannibalism was suppressed by Stalin and the Soviets for many, many years. But now it's out and historians consider it reliable. So there are many cases where a city was besieged in the ancient world and the enemies of that city would accuse the inhabitants of cannibalism. But more reliable would be cities that were besieged that then self-reported these acts of cannibalism. 
and one such occurrence, one of the most reliably documented incidents of cannibalism in the ancient world, was the cannibal crusaders. During the First Crusade, in the year 1098, in the city of Ma'arat al-Numan, I hope I said that right, I have no idea, but it is a city in modern-day Syria. And picture this, the Christians are outside the Muslim city. Inside the city are a bunch of Muslims with their army. They are trying to withstand the Christian siege, this onslaught from the holy Christian army. And nobody seemed to be prevailing. They weren't getting anywhere, so they declare this temporary truce. And then on the 12th of December, 1098, the Christians, by breaking their word and attacking during the time period that they agreed would be a truce, are actually able to enter the city and overthrow it. So the Christians have taken over the city of Ma'arat, but unfortunately they did not plan very well. They did not bring enough food to live once they had taken the city. And you can imagine that the siege itself had depleted most of the food inside the city. So they devised a fairly inelegant solution to this problem. They told the people of Ma'arat, the civilians, that if they surrendered peacefully they would spare them. And of course then the Christian crusaders went back on that word also and slaughtered up to 20,000 of these innocent civilians. So of course then there are less people to feed, but even with this, they don't have enough food. The army itself doesn't have enough food. So what happens next is described in a letter from Radulf of Cain to the Pope himself. He writes, In Mara, our troops boiled pagan adults alive in cooking pots. They impaled Muslims on spits and devoured them grilled. We have another source of this also. It wasn't somebody who was contemporary or traveling with the Crusaders, but it was the chronicler of the First Crusade. His name was Fulcher of Chartres. By the way, if you have not seen the cathedral in Chartres, France, you do need to go see that cathedral. It is a truly amazing piece of Gothic art. But Fulcher of Chartres writes this, I shudder to tell them that many of our people, harassed by the madness of excessive hunger, cut pieces from the buttocks of the Saracens already dead there, which they cooked, but when it was not yet roasted enough by the fire, they devoured it. Almost makes it sound like if they would have roasted it a little bit longer, it would not have been such a barbaric act. They just ate it a little too soon, according to Vulture. But he writes that they devoured it with savage mouth. And again, it would be one thing if it were just the Muslims accusing the Christian crusaders of cannibalism. But these are their own historians, the chroniclers of their great and noble exploits. So from now on, when you hear the song, Onward Christian Soldiers, you're going to remember the events in Marat. You're going to realize that the Christian crusaders are remembered by the Muslims as being particularly vicious, nasty, lying, deceptive barbarians. And there's still a sting in that today. When a Muslim in the Middle East accuses Christians of being quote-unquote crusaders, it still has the power to evoke great bitterness. Certainly not one of these shining moments in Christian history. I'm going to be talking about the Crusades in a series of episodes also, so I'll leave that for now. There are, of course, many other recorded episodes of cannibalism. One of them is in the Jewish historian Josephus. In Book 6 of Wars of the Jews, he's describing Titus's siege of Jerusalem in 70 CE. And Josephus tells the story of Mary the cannibal. Of course her name is Mary. I don't know if everyone was named Miriam, which Mary is our English translation, because it kind of seems to me like if you passed a woman on the street and you could not remember her name, if you just said, oh, hi, Miriam, you're going to be right about 90% of the time. But in this story... Miriam is attacked by a bunch of Jewish bandits who take all of her food. Of course, Josephus didn't want to blame the Romans for anything. 
So he doesn't blame Titus for starving Miriam to death, he blames these Jewish bandits. But the point is that this woman has no food, and so she kills her own child, thinking that this is not a fit world for a child to live in, and she eats half of the child and hides the other half. And when this act is discovered, there's great mourning and shame in all of Israel. It's really hard to tell if this is a real event. It is probably a real event or an embellished real event, but it does have some of the hallmarks of an allegory, so it's hard to tell. Before the woman even eats her child, Josephus puts this pious monologue into her mouth, and there's just really no way he could have heard any of that, of course. There are many, many stories of cannibalism during siege. I'm going to leave that topic, because a lot of this could have really gone into the episode about stranded cannibals. People in a besieged city are just stranded, so it really doesn't matter if it's the snow in the Sierra Nevadas, or if it is the Nazi army. You're still stranded. You're being deprived of food, and you have to get some somewhere. And really, all of these conditions are kind of just a microcosm of the general human condition, whether you're in a rowboat, in a besieged city, in the mountains, or if you're stranded on a continent. The common element of all of this is scarcity of resources. There simply are not enough proteins, fats, and carbohydrates to feed the people who need them. All of human existence has been defined by scarcity of resources. We never have had, and probably never will have, infinite resources. And this scarcity of resources can be made much more acute by famines, by floods, by hurricanes, volcanoes, other natural disasters. They're not really qualitatively different than siege conditions. But I would say this, there are vast differences in the quantity of people affected. I mean, you think about the number of lives lost in famines alone. Those numbers are staggering, even in comparison to the siege of Leningrad. About a million Mayan people died in the collapse of their civilization between 800 and 1,000 of the Common Era. Two million Russians in the Great Famine of 1601 to 1603. In the Great Bengal Famine of 1770 in India, 10 million souls dead. Actually, there are too many famines in India to adequately even list, let alone to cover. And China, believe it or not, is even worse. Between 1876 and 1879, there was a three-year famine in China that killed about 18, 19 million people. During the famine induced by the Opium Wars and a massive drought in China, 60 million people died. 60 million. And they died of starvation or infectious diseases, which could be traced back to their weakened immune system because they just didn't have enough food. This is kind of the equivalent as if the siege of Leningrad had gone on for 23 years and 2 or 3 million people died every single year. So lack of resources, for whatever reason, can reproduce those siege-like conditions. But I have to say this, and this is kind of the take-home. Even when people are starving to death in the massive scale, cannibalism is very, very rare. People would rather starve to death than eat each other. Even if an alien from outer space came and looked at our planet and said, Look, why are you starving to death? There's all this meat to eat all around you. Why are you leaving it alone? There's over 350 million tons of human biomass on this planet. Two humans die every single second on this planet, and during times of famine, that becomes even more common. The average amount of calories in each of these dying humans, at least if it's an adult male, has been figured to be about 125,000 calories. And 30,000 of those calories come just from the meat alone. So our alien visitor might ask, why are you starving to death? even as you bury 20 to 30 days' worth of food? And I think the answer is twofold, and I think it's fairly obvious. 
On the one hand, we have strict moral prohibitions against violating a corpse or another human being in that way. And, on the other hand, it's just plain disgusting. It's revolting. And it turns out that these two reactions to the thought of eating somebody else, both physiologic disgust and moral repulsion, are deeply connected. I would like to make the case that they are connected at the neural level. And to make that case, I want to tell you just a little bit about the anterior insula. The insular cortex is something that all mammals have. It is a region of the brain folded deep within the cerebrum. And if you use functional MRI scanning, the circuitry in the anterior insula will light up in the presence of something disgusting. Disgust itself is considered a primary emotion, meaning it is not a culturally learned phenomenon. You may find one or other things disgusting based on the culture in which you were raised, but disgust itself at the core level, is the same from culture to culture. In fact, it has a very easily recognizable facial expression, and it is typically manifest in the presence of certain tastes and certain smells, or even the thought of certain tastes and smells. will cause the eyebrows to knit together a little bit, the nose wrinkles up, the tongue protrudes just a little bit, and you can recognize this whether you are a Fiji Islander, an Inuit, a Maori, somebody from Sub-Saharan Africa. It's the same across cultures. And it seems to be a response to things that could make us sick. So what elicits a disgust response? Maggots will elicit a disgust response. A bowl full of pus, spittle, a festering wound, worms in a pig. All of these things are disgusting. And think about what that facial expression does. If you're living in a society of humans, and you see somebody eating something and they make that expression, you don't have to go over and try that food. You don't even have to talk to them about it. You know that that is disgusting and you are much less inclined to eat something that could make you sick. So there is a direct and powerful survival benefit in recognizing disgust between members of our species. The psychologist Paul Ekman in the 1970s proved that even people who are born blind will make the characteristic facial expression of disgust. So we do not learn this by observing others. This is hardwired into us. There was a study done by Valerie Curtis in 2010 where she showed a bunch of disgusting pictures to people, and the picture that scored a perfect 5 out of 5, with the 5 being the most disgusting of all, was a picture of gums with maggots crawling around on them. Every single person who saw that picture around the entire world, 80,000 people, gave that image a perfect 5 out of 5 for being disgusting. But where this gets very interesting also, and where it helps us learn a little bit more about who we are, is the fact that discuss the anterior insula's reaction to disgusting foods and potentially infecting organisms has been repurposed into the moral realm. So social transgressions can elicit within us the same sense of disgust that maggots or pus or puke can elicit. Our brains are funny things as they developed and had new demands placed on them. They didn't develop completely new circuitry and architecture. They simply repurpose existing pathways to meet new demands. So, when you walk into a pool of vomit, you feel disgusted and you try to remove yourself in any way possible from that pool of vomit. You want to get away from that contaminant. And the same thing is true for what are perceived as social or moral contaminants. We want to push them away. We want to get back from them. We want to shun them, kick them out, whatever it is. Some of the more fascinating studies to me are those which show that people who have a high disgust sensitivity, so let's say worms make them disgusted, whereas most people aren't really disgusted by worms. 
So you take these people who are more sensitive to disgust at physical contaminants, and you present these people with evidence of a crime being committed. They are much more likely to convict the suspect of committing the crime. And the thought is that they want to lock that person up, get them away from them. They are also much more likely to see certain transgressive behaviors as evil instead of as merely misguided. So they're harsher in their judgments. And I'm referencing the work of two authors, Jones and Fitness, in 2008 in the journal Emotion, if you want to look that up. The name of the study, I believe, is Moral Hypervigilance, the Influence of Disgust Sensitivity in the Moral Domain. And of course, there are certain domains of disgust. When you look at another person and you think of kissing or being intimate to that person, you can feel that same sense of disgust that you would feel from a contaminating organism. Why is that? Well, the thought there is that this is a mechanism that has developed to protect us from mating with biologically costly partners. And I think the take-home is, no matter what the transgression is, if it's violation by microorganism or parasite, violation morally, if it's sexual repulsion, that same anterior insular cortex lights up in functional MRI scanning. So bringing this back to anthropic allophages, why do we not eat each other more often? Well, I think that works on disgust from two separate pathways. The first is that we have a, an almost innate physiologic disgust against the idea of eating another person. If you look at someone, you think of eating them, kind of get a little repulsed by the idea. And that might have developed, according to some scientists, because if you are a human and you eat another human, you are both susceptible to these same infecting organisms and pathogens. So it is a very effective way to transmit infection to another member of your own species. Whereas if you're eating a pig or a horse or a cow or something, you're much less likely to be affected by the same prions, viruses, and bacteria as they are. That's just one possibility. I'm not sure if that's the way it is. But disgust also works in cannibalism at the moral level. We view it as a transgression, as a violation. And violations are the types of moral infractions that trigger disgust in us the most effectively. So disgust is a fascinating emotion, a fascinating response. And I think we're going to be talking about something even more disgusting in the next episode than siege cannibalism. We're going to be talking about aggression cannibalism, the ways in which armies or soldiers try to dehumanize, to degrade, to humiliate their opponents through the ultimate act of violation. So I had meant to put this all into one episode. And I'm still going to call it all episode 5, The Cannibals of War. But this siege cannibalism is going to be part A. Next time will be part B. And it will cover such things as aggression or ritualistic cannibalism. So, something to look forward to. <laughs> Thank you again for being here with us. This has been Know Thyself. I'm the host, Noel Armstrong. If you want to support the research that goes into making this podcast to help me get the best interviews, the greatest experts, and to spread the word to more people, please go to iTunes if you have a minute. Just give us a five-star rating. I really appreciate it. And I'll see you on part B of The Cannibals of War.